I do think that you know, business leaders are going to care more and more about what can produce the result mm -hmm. versus you know what's the shiniest and sexiest toy out there. When all is said and done, I think that one of the biggest impacts that's going to be revolutionizing commerce is going to be generative AI. Today's episode will be with uh, Joseph Lee from one of our global solution partners called Pivotry. And Joseph has uh, quite an interesting uh, background because he, he spent time with uh, many major digital commerce platforms uh, from SAP to Miracle to Vitex <coughs> and um, was kind of witnessing the evolution uh, of the market, of the B2C retail space, of the B2B space. Joseph is now a general manager uh, with Pivotry. Uh, Pivotry is a company uh, based in um, Canada. Uh, they recently launched a very interesting service called um, Commerce as a Service, which is uh, in many ways, I think, well connected to uh, the slogan of this podcast, which is Compose Outcomes Beyond Technology. And the conversation is very uh, insightful. Uh, Joseph shares a lot of interesting learnings from his day-to-day -day work about how to explain, how to position composable commerce uh, the right way, the challenges, but also the opportunities and potentials. So uh, this is uh, an episode I enjoyed uh, very much recording uh, so um, have fun and um, hopefully this will be as entertaining for you as it was for me to spend time with him. Let's go. Wonderful. Uh, welcome to a new episode of the Composable Cameras Leaders Podcast. Today I am with Joseph Lee, who is GM for commerce with uh, Pivotry. And Pivotry is a 600 plus uh, people um, global company present in North America, in EMEA and APEC, uh, and uh, is a leader in frictionless uh, commerce. And uh, Joseph is actually a very experienced uh, digital commerce veteran, you could say, with uh, some interesting career uh, uh, stations that he had. So Joseph, welcome to the show. So let's maybe start uh, with you sharing some background, you know, that, that, that you have uh, in digital commerce, because, you know, it, it, it looks like you have seen a lot in the last couple of years uh, from different perspectives. So, so why, why don't we start with that? Sure. Um, you know, I actually began my career as a management consultant doing strategy and operations work um, for Fortune 100 companies. And that's how I really began my career. And in the last leg of that, um, you know, I was consulting really for a very large IT department in Hong Kong, SAR. At that time, it was called Special Administrative Region. Mm -hmm. uh, China was just taking over uh, Hong Kong back from the British. And um, that's how I began um, really into IT, if you will. Um, I decided to open a company with a partner of mine uh, called Dynamic Digital Commerce Corporation, short form D2C2. People used to laugh at us and call us R2D2. Um, and you know, we over nine and a half years, um, we grew that company quite well. Uh, you know, I do remember, uh, you know, we broke even in the first uh, 18 months of operations uh, and we expanded from Toronto 
to Taipei, uh, to China and Hong Kong. Um, during that stint, you know, we had partnered with Intershop Communications, GmbH, mm-hmm. um, as well as ePages, GmbH. Um, so, you know, it's kind of funny, the, the karma with uh, German companies. Yeah. Um, and we became the exclusive distributor uh, for Intershop in Asia Pacific, specifically Greater China, China, mm-hmm. Hong Kong, Taiwan. And we grew the business for a while and, and we were able to bring down some beautiful uh, customers, uh, Nortel Networks being one of them, mm-hmm. uh, Sony being another, Mitsui, mm-hmm. uh, another one in Japan. Um, and they were marquee customers of ours. And uh, throughout that, we learned a whole lot about what is today B2C and B2B and even B2B2C mm-hmm. uh, channel management. And it was, uh, it was quite a foray. Um, you know, way back in 2007, um, I had decided to bring my family back to Toronto, mainly for my son, uh, a lot of opportunities in North America. Um, and, you know, I joined a company called Art Technology Group mm-hmm. out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And they were really an early uh, commerce player. Um, and I remember that uh, over the five years that I was there, a lot had happened. Um, you know, we took the companies from about 100 million in, in run rate to about uh, 230 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had sold the company to uh, SAP. Uh, sorry, uh, we sold the company to Oracle mm-hmm. for about a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, at that point in time, I stayed at Oracle for about, uh, uh, about a year or so. Uh, then I decided to join Hybris, which again is a German <laughs> company. There's, there's a theme coming here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I joined Hybris, it was really small. Uh, we were really small. We were six and a half million mm-hmm. in, in revenue in North America. Um, it was Steve Kramer and myself and Jerry Short, just a few of the, the, the industry veterans. And we kind of sat around the table and we're like, we're only six and a half million, we're really small. And mm-hmm. our team could fit at a boardroom table. In mm-hmm. fact, we couldn't fill the boardroom table. Yeah. Um, but things worked out. Um, you know, we went from uh, six and a half million in, in North America to about 115 million over a three year time period. And we sold that company to SAP for $1.5 billion. I spent some time at a grocery e-commerce focused company called My Web Grocer. Mm-hmm. after that. Uh, then I spent some time as EVP of sales for Miracle, mm-hmm. uh, the marketplace company. And then I went on to Vitex as CRO. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them have been wonderful adventures in e-commerce and all of them a little bit different. Some in niche markets, mm-hmm. um, some uh, in more generalist commerce platform, um, and all of them very challenging. Uh, and it's been a great learning experience. I am now uh, at Pivotry and uh, playing a little bit of a different role as general manager, um, less of a quote unquote CRO role. Um, mm-hmm. And it's again, a different kind of challenge and, and it's been wonderful. It's, a, it's an amazing, amazing journey. And yeah, I see, I see some pattern here with a German, <laughs> German companies now also partnering with, uh, with uh, Spryker. Um, so give us a feeling for what Pivotry does, like, you know, who, what is your, who is your ICP, you know, what industries, what sectors are you serving? Uh, regions you operate in, what, what's the general kind of the value proposition that you have? Absolutely. You know, Pivotry is really focused around frictionless commerce, and that could mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But very mm-hmm. specifically, um, we are focused on commerce solutions, data solutions, and supply chain solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, 
our data group became very strong with the acquisition of a company called Codified. Mm -hmm. And Codified was the top steeple partner in the world uh, at the time. And our supply chain division really became very strong with the acquisition of Bridge Consulting, the mm -hmm. top fluent partner uh, mm -hmm. in the world. And so, you know, alongside of ThinkRap, which was the original um, e-commerce engine, ThinkRap was very strong in things like Oracle ATG, mm -hmm. um, as well as Hybris. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, together we make up this very comprehensive set of solutions uh, for our customers in mm -hmm. commerce, data, and supply chain. Interesting. And, and, and from a business value perspective, like I know our industry is very much focused on you know, pitching on features and pitching on scope. And I had a, I had a keynote yesterday which, which was named Bullshit Bingo in B2B Commerce because like all these statements and terms flying around. And, uh, um, but from a business value perspective, right? So when, when, when you're sitting in front, in front of a customer, what is it that you pitch on? What, what are the outcomes you promise? What is the business value you, you, know, you promise your customers you will help them achieve? So this is near and dear to my heart. It is at the center of this innovative strategy that we call commerce as a service. And part of this has to do with customer experience strategy or CX strategy for mm -hmm. short. When we engage customers, we don't start the conversation about technology. We don't sell features and functions. We ask customers, what are their uh, short, mid and long-term business objectives? Mm -hmm. And how will they track that? You know, what are the key performance indicators that we're really going to have to grasp in order to meet those objectives? That's where we start. Mm -hmm. um, then we really get into their customer, really understanding their customer's personas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, from that, we then start to benchmark all the online assets that they have today, mm -hmm. even sometimes offline. Right. And, and we work with a company called Baymard Institute that really benchmarks the top 300 plus um, major online players in the world. Mm -hmm. And we can see how that company scores, mm -hmm. how they're stack ranked. Right. Then as we move forward, we start collecting requirements, right? Mm -hmm. um, and as we, as we kind of collect those requirements, we can form a hypothesis. And with the customer, once we get to that right hypothesis, we don't like to do big bangs. Mm -hmm. We like to make it very iter iterative. Yeah. Um, so, so we test and learn quite a bit in the market. Um, and if it works, great, now we can scale it. And if it doesn't work, well, then we throw it out. Mm -hmm. And should that theory uh, be confirmed and it works, then we start doing growth management. Mm -hmm. How do we track the success or failure of the program? Right. Yeah. And as we work with customers, we also like to roadmap together mm -hmm. uh, in a very collaborative process. And, you know, customers also require approvals, right? You know, if you're a VP or right. your director of technology, you're probably going to need a CIO, CTO, CEO, even CO, CFO approval. And in order to get those, you need to prepare business cases. And what we've learned is a lot of customers mm -hmm. are not very good at building business cases. Yeah. And so we work together with our customers to build those business cases. And, and oftentimes we have to pitch eight or 10 business cases to get one or two approved. Right. And when they do get approved, well, that's another major project for mm -hmm. the customer that hopefully will have strategic impact for them. And then we continue that cycle. I mean, this is super interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm really, um, I'm wondering how, how, how do customers perceive this? Because this is like very different from how many of the other SIs and you know, consultancies would, would go to market. And I could imagine there are customers who 
you know, are very thankful, right? Especially for this business case modeling, you know, and helping them to, to, to get budgets approved and helping them to find or identify the right use cases. Others might be like, hey guys, you know, I called you, you know, I just need you to estimate, you know, my, my, my requirements. So, you know, don't, 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 don't sell me this, this entire uh, uh, overlay of, of uh, uh, business consulting and everything else. So, 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 so what is your, what is your uh, learning so far? Are customers like in general open or is this maybe even something that you are using as a filter to qualify as, hey, okay, you guys came to us with a multi-year, multi-million initiative, you know, you asked for 100% growth year by year, yet you are not willing, you know, to invest this time. So this may be like a proxy of seriousness uh, in a way for you. So, 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 so just, just, just walk me through how you think about it. So the system integration industry and agency um, landscape has changed a lot. Um, and, and, but one thing that hasn't changed is the model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the model usually is the customer already has gone through the strategic thinking. They've already had discussions with the C-suite. They've already had the business case presented to them. And when they bring in a system integrator, it's really to do labor, mm-hmm. right? It's not to think things through. It's not to look at best practices and strategy. It's always been about how are we going to deploy at the lowest cost and, and the quickest time. Right. And that, in my view, is really something um, that needs to change. Um, you know, commerce system integrators actually have a ton of experience, a wealth of experience in multiple vertical industries. And in order to really be able to parlay that experience into value for customers, we need to be able to have a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. And that means as we go through this CX strategy and discovery process, we are sitting with the C-suite. Mm-hmm. We are sitting with their ELT and we're forming these ideas together. It is really beneficial, I think, to the system integrator because it is a much longer term and a much deeper relationship that's built upon SIs that put the customer first, mm-hmm. that always has the customer's best interest in mind. And our belief is in the corollary, customers are looking for a truly trusted partner mm-hmm. that won't necessarily make decisions only mm-hmm. for their own benefit. Right. And so through this interrelationship, we believe that we can build something much stronger and much more innovative. So far, um, I would say that more than 90% of the customers and prospects that we've spoken to love the idea. Not right. like, love. Right. Yeah. And, and speaking about getting a seat, seat at the table, so you mentioned already that you that you launched something which you call commerce as a service, which which I think is a you know very interesting and innovative approach. So does it also mean that in exchange for the seat at the table, you are having more skin in the game, like in terms of how the engagement model works for the customer? Because I think this is something that you know you need to kind of inter-exchange because otherwise you know this alignment of interest might not be there. So 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 what what is commerce as a service, and you know why did you why did you launch it? So. One of the reasons that we launch Commerce as a Service is that we see that the market is changing. Just like software as a service has changed the entire software landscape, we believe that it's ripe for change in the services industry as well. Mm-hmm. And in the service industry, for far too long, customers have had to pay millions and millions of dollars up front for zero guarantee of success. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, because the economy isn't doing so well, CFOs are becoming much more stringent. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And what that means is that they are going to want to take a microscopic view of every single project. Mm -hmm. And if after six months, you've only generated $300,000 in revenue, but you spent $3 million, your project has the real threat of being shut down mm -hmm. completely mm -hmm. or put on pause. Yeah. And commerce service is really able to take that giant, tremendous capex and make it a very strategic opex. Mm -hmm. And for the CFO, there's benefit because number one, they have a, it's much more ratable. Mm -hmm. It's much more predictable. Mm -hmm. um, and they know exactly how much they're going to spend on a monthly basis and for how long. Right. And they don't need to shell out that money right up front. And so I think that that is kind of the phase one of commerce as a service. Eventually, mm -hmm. uh, the vision that we have is that it will be a value-based model, mm -hmm. much like management consulting was 30 years ago, right. whereby whatever value we produce for you, we will take a percentage of that. That is true skin in the game. Right. That means that you are a business partner. Right. Okay. Yeah. This is this is this is super exciting. Um, let's maybe uh, switch to Composal Commerce. Right. It's a, you know, a relatively new new term. Right. But I think something which which uh, all of us hear every day. So uh, explain Composal Commerce in your words. Right. And and also w what type of analogies you know you would typically use if you're sitting in front of a customer. Everyone has to say this is Lego. This is Playmobil. Right. So, so what analogies are you using and how do you explain it? Well, I, I you know, I, I'm fairly pragmatic about the technology side of things. And, and what I've seen in the market, because I've lived through it, was that in the, in the early days, it was about the monolithic technologies. And when I say monolithic, it means all of the features, all of the functions, all of the modules within a system are interrelated. And so when you change one, you need to make changes everywhere else. That, in my mind, is a monolith. So I'm defining the before right. before I define the present uh, and the future. When I think about composable, it is really far more independent, if you will, mm -hmm. and that each of the APIs are um, in and of itself can work on its own, <laughs> but still speak and interoperate with other APIs. Mm -hmm. um, what that brings, I think, is a different type of scalability um, to the systems. It, it brings a lot of flexibility, I think, to the customers in terms of what it is that they're able to deploy. And um, it gives absolute independence, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, and, and those are wonderful things, right? This, this type of approach really didn't exist until more recently, mm -hmm. right? And, and from a business value perspective, like I, th I think one of the most asked questions that we get is, you know, you explain all these advantages and, you know, like from a technology point of view, how, how it is different. And then by the end of the, this presentation, customers still go, okay, what's in for me? Right? So why should I care? Right? So I, I get that you guys, you know, under, under the hood, you know, you have a better way of, you know, arranging your capabilities and connecting with, with APIs, but how do you translate it into business value for a customer? Right? So what's, what's, what's in for them? So there's a couple of approaches that we take, and it all has to do with pre-composition. A part of Pivotry's strategy is really to create accelerators around the solutions that we offer. And what that means is that we pre-compose the solutions. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, if we are working for an iHealth company, um, we are going, and it's a B2B2C marketplace type solution, we are absolutely going to want to pre-compose it in such a way that it can be reused in the future. Yeah. So uh, although we share the IP 
in the future, if there's another eye healthcare company that wants to uh, deploy one of these composable solutions, mm -hmm. because of all the pre-composition that we did beforehand, yeah. the project is far cheaper and far faster to deploy. Okay. And, 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 and how does the, the pitch differentiate between the different personas, right? Because this is something I, I find very interesting, right? In this monolithic days, right? So you had one value proposition, right? Now you, know, you have these different capabilities also mean that customers can buy in the best of breed way. So the final result, right? The final composed result they have might consist out of, you know, 20 package business capabilities from, let's say, Spryker. There might be like another couple services they buy, like in payment and search, right? There might be a few services they d decide to build internally because, you know, there's a lot of differentiation in them, let's say pricing, right? So you, you end up with, you know, a, a much wider kind of a, a system in the end, right? Which also means that uh, the actual pitch and the, the different stakeholders involved, right? You, you, you need to address, right? So does it make the does it make the pitch more complicated? Does it take more time? Because now you need to convince the OMS guys, you need to convince, you know, the core commerce people, you need to convince the ones, you know, responsible for product and category management about the PIM capability. Uh, or, or how do you how do you navigate through this? So I would say that you're absolutely right. In a sales process, in the modern sales process, there are a lot of decision makers. Um, Primarily, we focus on the economic decision maker, the one that signs the check, mm -hmm. the technologist. Um, uh, and a technology decision maker doesn't necessarily have to be a technologist. They could actually be somebody who's a functional expert. Right. Um, we focus on the end user, so the person that will use the system at the end. And we focus on building coaches and champions within an account mm -hmm. to ensure that those coaches and champions will help you uh, continue to message your company's benefits to that customer internally. Mm -hmm. And obviously they have different roles and responsibilities. Typically when we speak to a C-suite, a CEO, as mm -hmm. an example, we try to avoid the technology terms. Mm -hmm. uh, they're thinking in most cases about the big picture. Mm -hmm. And for them, they do realize they have to reduce their capital expenditures. Right. And sometimes they're OPEX. Um, they do realize that they need to automate, that not every problem can be solved by throwing full-time equivalents or FTEs or people at the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and that they do realize that um, you know, technology debt is a major issue, not because they understand the technology because they're CEO, yeah. but because they realize it's taking and sucking so much of their money every year that they're spending almost half, in some cases, two thirds of their money, yeah. their IT money on retiring technology debt. Right. And so those are some of the things I think that from a CEO perspective, they're really gonna care about. Mm -hmm. When we speak to a CIO or a CTO, it's a very different type of paradigm. And even a CIO or CTO doesn't really wanna get into the nitty gritty of every feature and every function. Mm -hmm. They are looking for partners that are able to solve for a wide array of issues. It's kind of funny, sometimes we work with a customer and they tell us, you know, or, or I'm speaking to them, they say, Joseph, I have, a, I have a search issue. I'm like, what do you mean you have a search issue? <laughs> They're like, no one can find our products. You have no idea, you know, uh, what's wrong. Maybe I need to, a new search engine. Um, and then oftentimes we do a lot of discovery and research and as we delve in, to the real root of the problem, we realize it's not a search issue, it's a data issue, yeah. 
right? Your data isn't categorized correctly, right? And it's not uh, properly organized and it's not truly a search issue. You don't need a new search engine because yeah. every search engine can do it, but you have a data issue, right? Yeah. So that's when the full breadth of Pivotry services comes into play that regardless if it's commerce, data or supply chain, we're able to help the customer achieve their business um, focused results mm -hmm. versus focusing on the features and functions. And I think the CTOs and CIOs really appreciate that. And is there any difference in what I call a digital maturity? So because companies nowadays, you know, would approach you and everyone picks these terms up and, you know, would come to you and say, hey, you know, I want a composable, a composable solution, right? So is there any uh, any filter that you're using internally to kind of identify whether... So, so, so first of all, is everyone set up to go down this composable commerce route, right? And if not, then, you know, what filters are you using internally to maybe push back and, uh, or, or temporarily push back and say, hey, you know, you guys, this is not an approach which will, you know, create value for you or this might be an approach which will create value for you, but there are certain preconditions and pre-steps like in terms of like org chart, methodology and other things you need to accept, right, and implement before this will really help you. Uh, um, so, so, so how do you, how do you uh, steer this? Oftentimes when we start thinking about the ideal customer profile, right, there is no uh, very clean way to do it, but I can tell you what we do at Pivotry. I think the first thing is we try to work with companies that have at least $100 million in total revenue. Mm -hmm. um, within the data and commerce groups, we focus in on $500 million and above in total, cust uh, total customer revenue. Yeah. So that's the first economic filter. Yeah. I think the second is really the what you mentioned, the digital maturity. And there are customers, some of them don't even have a website, believe it or not. Uh, in this day and age, they're using facsimiles and everything is manual. Um, and then there's those with websites and there's those with commerce sites and those that are very digitally advanced with dropship and marketplace. Mm. Um, so we really do need to look at it through the lens of where they are in that journey. But then there is also the composable uh, story, right? At the end of the day, if you're going to do composable, you do need to be organized in such a way that you have an internal IT team that has a certain maturity level, yeah. has a certain level of expertise. And if you don't have that, you either don't do composable or find a partner that is very good at composable and is able to help you. Yeah. And so it doesn't mean just because you're small, you can't do composable. You can always find a partner to assist you. Um, but if you're going to try and do it yourself, I would advise that if you've got only, you know, half a dozen people in your IT staff, you probably will have a hard time going full composable because of what composable really means. And this is a good handover to, to my next um, question. Everyone obviously is speaking about all the upsides and advantages of composable commerce, and there are many, right? Some of them we already discussed. But there are also downsides, right? And for whatever reason, our industry is not good in, in discussing and disclosing and, and, and just being transparent and maybe even honest, you know, to customers saying, look, you know, this is, on, you know, these uh, uh, points you have on the, on the pro side and this will help you. But there are also risks or there are also concepts you need to consider and you also need to actively buy into if you're going down this approach because, you know, there will be, there will be certain uh, consequences. So, so what are the... What are the downsides or what are the typical risks or challenges which you would either, either flag to your customers, right? Or, or at least if you're you know, not flagging them as, as, as maybe openly, but at least like check for, you know, in, in your engagement model to make sure that the, uh, the, the Composer Commerce approach still creates the value that your customers want. Right. So 
in the latest commerce as a service white paper, we're actually 100% transparent with our customers around the downside. And Composable is a beautiful idea and it's a beautiful vision and I absolutely stand behind it. That being said, it's not all roses. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the issues that we often see is that customers have a very hard time with Composable because you, by the nature of Composable, you need to deal with many different vendors. Mm -hmm. So if you're deploying a commerce solution, it's not just the commerce solution, it's also, well, what search solution? What front end solution? Right? Potentially what PIM, what OMS. By the time you're completed, you know, you may be dealing with seven or eight different major vendors. Mm -hmm. And from a procurement process perspective and a overhead and administration perspective, that's very expensive. Yeah. That means seven different contracts, seven different vendors wanting half a percent to two percent revenue share from you. Um, different SLAs, maybe. Right. Integration, yeah. different SLAs, to your point, yeah. vendor relationship management. By the time you're done, it becomes quite the headache. So I would say that that is a very painful piece. Composability is great, mm -hmm. but there will be some CIOs and CTOs that long for the simplicity of the old days when they can mm -hmm. just deal with one vendor, yeah. one throat to choke, one back to pet. And that is why another reason we created Commerce as a Service. Mm -hmm. That one throat to choke, one back to pat, we intend for it to be pivotry. Right. So that they have a trusted partner, that they don't need to go to seven different vendors and everything through one vendor, one relationship. And, and are you, so do you see any, uh, any significant um, change or risk nowadays because of the current you know, macro environment that this potential risk or this potential threat uh, or, or in, kind of in, in the, uh, this potential trend in the other direction may accelerate you know you 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 mentioned very well that uh cfos more than ever right more than the last 10 to 15 years are paying more attention or increasingly paying more attention to budgets to you know faster shorter ROIs, right so by the time they find out that hey you know it's it's a nice technology play right but i end up with multiple contracts multiple vendors multiple says maybe even higher tco cost not necessarily higher right because uh, you know there are also advantages and, and uh, you know, you can update certain components individually and, you know, you might end up in a best of breed way exchanging capabilities faster. So more, more metrics which you need to consider. But do you, do you see this as a risk that in, current, in the current macro, this might, so there might be more pushback, let's say, right, uh, to Composable Commerce as an approach? It would be a risk if there was no commerce as a service. And because we're offering commerce as a service through Pivotry, I think that they can be rest assured that companies like ours, and right now we're fairly unique, um, are going to be able to handle that kind of risk for them. Mm -hmm. So we are that risk mitigation. Um, to say that they can have one throat to choke, one back to pat, one company that's accountable for their IT needs, and that's exactly where we want to be. All right. Sounds good. And in terms of your organizational setup, so let's let's uh, um, maybe if, if you could walk us through how do you how do you ensure that you actually deliver on the outcomes, right? So again, the the tagline is composed outcomes beyond technology. So let's say you have selected the best composable partners, right? So there's a commerce technology, there's a search. So you, you brought it all to the table. The customer bought into the composable uh, to the commerce as a service uh, vision, right? And also to the commercial and, and to the into the, the engagement model. So how do you ensure that uh, and, and also from organizational design perspective, the roles which you have, you know, to, to, to 
let's say over the course of five years that you know outcome is really achieved and not just you know a nice composed technology landscape right going back to the process that i was describing before one of the things that's really crucial is that we define the key results the objectives and key results up front mm -hmm. that we have those kpis defined up front that there is an agreement beforehand of what those truly are we try to pin those towards business results rather than technology results. Um, it's not just about average order value. It's not just about um, you know co customer acquisition costs. I think it goes beyond that. And and for so what we don't do is say, well, search has to produce A B C D E, mm -hmm. you know, functional improvements. What we right. do do is say, well, you know, we're going to want to increase. Um, your average order value by X, and here's how we are going to do it. This is the part of growth management that I was describing before, where we're going to actually be able to track all of the key metrics. And when I say key metrics, it's not how much money the customer gives us as the system integrator, it's whether or not they achieve each and every key result that they promised their executive leadership team. And you could also abstract away the actual vendors used so in the model let's say so maybe not in the beginning because i think you know the the um, the brand power of the actual you know building blocks you know might might be strong but like fast forward you know to a potential you know future vision of of, of commerce as a service you could go as far as just saying hey you should not care right about whether it's search a b c d in the background as long as we are achieving the set objective and kpis right and you just trust us that we and if needed you know, we can start with partner A and then in the background we change it for partner B. You guys, you know, you don't, you, you don't care. You can sit there and relax and you get our monthly dash, uh, KPI dashboard uh, print out, right? And you just see the conversion rate via search going up, right? Is this, is this, is this kind of the, the, a possible uh, end game? Eventually, Boris, I, I do think that, you know, business leaders um, are going to care more and more about what can produce the result. Mm -hmm versus you know what's the shiniest and sexiest toy out there. Mm -hmm. I honestly believe that that is exactly where it's going. They're gonna want a partner that's so accountable that if they fail, the partner doesn't get paid. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. And speaking about uh, trends, so if you, I mean, again, composable commerce is, is, a, is a new thing, right? And, and still majority, unfortunately, to, to, to your examples about companies uh, of not even having a website still and, and you know, uh, procuring you know orders via via fax uh, so if you extrapolate this like so so where do you see this this going let's say in the next like three to five years right so how will the landscape look like right so you see like a wide adoption do you see campus of commerce being kind of an in-between step to something else uh, so 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 what's your what's your uh, view on the market so this is obviously a very broad question I'll, I'll try to focus on a couple of key areas in our opinion, when we look at the marketplace paradigm, it is the closest thing, if you will, to frictionless commerce, right? When you have a multi-buyer, multi-seller environment without even cross-border commerce, without a lot of barriers, that presents itself as a great frictionless commerce experience, right? The marketplace concept. But when all is said and done, I think that one of the biggest impacts that's going to be revolutionizing commerce is going to be generative AI, <laughs> to be quite honest. Uh, it's affecting not just search, 
right? Um, but the way that we interpret the behaviors of customers when they're navigating our website. Mm -hmm. Generative AI is just at the, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg, if you will. Uh, I think in the next five years, it will completely change the commerce space, mm -hmm. completely. Interesting. Yeah, this will be interesting to to watch. I mean, we are also obviously spending spending some time in that in that space. So yeah, I, I tend to I tend to agree. Um, Maybe uh, if you double click on the current environment, right? And I think we all have seen, you know, how much you know the the world has changed uh, uh, in in many aspects, not to the better, unfortunately, last in, in the last eighteen to twenty four months. So, did this influence your conversations with customers? Like, and if so, then then how, right? So, so we already spoke about capex, opex, and you know the uh, the the new requirements that CFOs might have, but also in terms of like overall initiatives, right? So, was there any change in terms of uh, time to value expectations or you know hey I need to have more more bets simultaneously and I need to find the, the right use case or that you know uh, certain things got completely stopped and other things people are now doubling down on and everyone now went into I don't know, cost reduction versus you know pure revenue growth so walk us through what what, what you are seeing what you are hearing in terms of in terms of how the market sure change <clears throat> maybe I start back with the economy when we think about the word recession, we think about things like high inflation rates. We think about low consumer confidence. We think about a depressed stock market. Mm -hmm. And we talk about things like asset devaluation of residential and commercial real estate. And if you add a war, the war in Ukraine, to that, it's the perfect storm. Mm -hmm. um, in the media today, you don't hear that we are in a recession. You hear, oh, maybe it's coming. Um, I would say something a little bit different. I would say we are in a recession, mm -hmm. whether we like it or not. Um, so it's quite painful and it may last a couple of years. Um, what we are finding, especially in the first quarter, already seeing that a lot of CFOs are feeling a lot of angst, anxiety. And because of that anxiety, they are delaying their decision or potentially reducing the scope of the project um, and uh, really thinking twice about making a major investment. So there's a lot more scrutiny to every major IT project. Right. So we are seeing that quite a bit today. Yeah. Um, now, from a trends perspective, the other thing that we're seeing is that marketplaces are really hot. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'll, I'll talk about a few different examples, one of them in healthcare, one of them in automotive. But really, basically, what I'm saying is that a lot of manufacturers today, 70 or 80% of their businesses come from their resellers. Mm -hmm. The problem they're going to face is that they can't get first party data uh, from those resellers because the resellers don't want to give it to them or they have to pay a lot for it. Yeah. The other problem that they face is they don't have real-time inventory visibility. And without the real-time inventory visibility, well, you're not going to be able to do proper demand forecasting. Mm -hmm. um, the third problem that they face is they don't have price transparency. And in such a terrible economic situation, mm. well, you better be able to do price optimization. And if you don't have uh, price transparency, you won't be able to do that. Right. And so those are three major problems that a lot of manufacturers, whether in healthcare, automotive, um, or CPGs, all face. The solve that we see for that is the marketplace concept. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you were to create a marketplace and have all your resellers, your distributors, all on that marketplace, as sellers on the marketplace, right. 
Now you have real-time inventory visibility. Now you have real-time price visibility. And then you have the end customer interacting with one system. Mm -hmm. Now you've got first-party data. Yeah. It solves for those issues that we're seeing over and over again. Yeah. So we and do, we see, we do it's, see that. It's interesting. I was moderating a panel yesterday, which was exactly about, about that, right? It was about how to build a relationship in a digital era between manufacturers and the distributors. And uh, the panelists who, who, you know, were with me on the, on the panel, they, they, they shared some interesting perspectives about exactly the same thing, saying, hey, you know, we have to deal with distributors often even less digital mature than we are, right? And we are, as manufacturers, often not, 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 not mature enough. Uh, we have to deal with the fact that they don't want to hand out data and we need to create, you know, uh, crazy incentives through MDFs or sometimes even invest into their technology capabilities just be, because even if they w wanted to share data, they just technically can't, right? So, uh, um, and, and there were some interesting concepts, you know, they, they discussed and, and Marketplace was obviously one. Um, but you know the interesting fact was also for me that many distributors are used, and, th and this this will have to change. Many distributors are used in the non-digital environment to have some form of protection about uh, like like about let's say the territory or the region or a certain cohort of users, right? Which they enjoyed for a long time, right? So to your point about intransparency, so this intransparency was kind of artificially created. Right? or there was no other way of not being intransparent. If I said, look, you know, uh, Joseph, you get this region of the world which you will serve as my product. Now, if you're building a marketplace, this is much harder to do because out of a sudden the differentiation which the, distribu the distribution partner had disappears, right? Because she or he just becomes a merchant on your marketplace. So you need to create and find new strategies because what every uh, uh, panelist agreed uh, upon was the fact that they want to work with them, right? So it's not, it's, it's not about bypassing them. They want to find a new and define a new way of partnership. But the distributors also have to accept that they will have to find other ways of differentiating, right? And they will also have to co-invest. And this it's a little bit like to your point about Germany and e-commerce, right? It's a little bit like in Germany we have, we have many so-called hidden champions, companies with billions of revenues in a niche category you never heard of, right? Sometimes companies would call us and say, you know, I'm company XYZ, and you're like, you know, who are you guys? And they would do, I don't know, silicon isolations for Windows. And then you look them up and they're 25 billion you know, right. market leaders. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's fast, you never heard of them. Right. And the reason why they could grow so big over the last, last 50 to 70 years, basically since World War II, was because of intransparency of price, because of intransparency of availability, right? And because customers just could not, you know, there was no way of uploading a bomb on Alibaba or somewhere else and find a better, cheaper, faster manufacturer, right? But this intransparency goes away, which creates, you know, in return the challenge. So I'm fully, I'm fully, uh, fully agreeing with you. It's a very interesting kind of uh, topic. Um, Coming, coming to an end, I would really, um, I would really want to uh, switch to some more personal uh, questions. Um, so my first question is: Is there any advice you would give, uh, you would want to give to your, you know, younger self? And younger can be whatever you want. It can be younger, like five years ago, younger. It can be younger, like two years ago, or it can be 15, 20 years ago. Is there any anything you, if you could go back in time, you would want to, to share? The first thing I'd share with my younger self maybe 15 years going back is don't be afraid of failure. You know, I, I've been very fortunate in my career that I've enjoyed a lot of successes, but I learned the most from my failures. No one, no matter how good you are, hmm. is perfect. And 
And by failing, you will learn so much more. It's different when somebody tells you to do things a certain way and you actually failed at it before and you stand back up. So not to be afraid of failure, that would be something very, very big. Um, and second is to embrace change. Um, in, the, in the early days, I remember that it was during the, the, the selling of monolithic software, you know, change was a bad word. <laughs> Today, it's pervasive. Mm -hmm. You nearly have to reinvent yourself at every position and role that you enter into. Yeah. And even in the same role, the evolution is happening so quickly. Mm. Yeah, fully. An example is a salesperson, right? The old way of a salesperson is that that man or woman would go out into the field and sell without a lot of help. They would have maybe a solution engineer, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Today, there are more than 24, 25 people involved in one pursuit, right. all in the same Slack channel, working together and collaboratively. It's a composable sales approach. <laughs> it's so different, right? Like it's that. so different, yeah. right? Um, and same thing with solution engineering. It used to be that it, you would be a demo dolly. You would go to a customer and you would say the exact same thing from the exact same script and just you know, yeah. take the cursor and, and point it around. Today... No, you have to be able to point out the business value of each and every function right. and relate it back like to personalize the customer. Personalize it to the customer. Exactly. Yeah, and to your point about, about AI, like, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really uh, disrupting, it will be disrupting many, many roles, and I think it's more profound than what people think, right? If, if, if you know, you look into, and it's still very, very early days, you look at all these tools which are popping up and, you know, how far they are already going uh i think this will be uh, and especially to sales and marketing related roles i think this will this will change quite quite a lot um my second question is is there any controversial statement or you know thinking or thesis which you have which typically other people would not agree with uh, but you would be very firm on this point of view um uh, this, this would be very interesting for me too well <laughs> when we were first thinking about the idea of commerce as a service. That was when I said something pretty controversial, which is, you know, what is the problem with composable? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, no, there's no problem with composable. It's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, mm -hmm. and, and we really analyzed it. And, and that was controversial at the time, I would mm -hmm. say, is the problem with composable. Okay, right? so. cool. And uh, final question, is there any book or blog recommendation or podcast recommendation, something which, you know, really inspires you or really helped you in the last in the last couple of years which you which you are happy to to share so i would say that one of my strengths personal strengths is strategy mm -hmm. and this <laughs> maybe people will think i'm ancient for saying it but there was a book that was written by a, a chinese general named sun tzu mm -hmm. right oh. the art of war mm -hmm. and uh, i would say that that's one of the books that i often think about and go by in and formulating strategy yeah right it's, so, it's a timeless yeah, timeless it's timeless <laughs> it's a timeless book I mean, joseph uh this was this was an incredible um journey and you know thank you very much for uh being on the show yeah. it's uh it's it's an honor you know to, to partner uh for us as pricer with pivotry i think you know what you guys are doing around uh commerce and services is uh not only you know unique but it's really yeah. um matching the zeitgeist which which you know we have at the moment i think very well Right. So um, yeah, happy to you know uh, watch you guys you know succeed and and uh, and you know, track you. Thanks for being on the show and thanks for sharing some wisdom with us. Thank you, Boris. It's our honor as well. Mm -hmm.